Welcome to Inside the Nest. It's the official podcast of Kennesaw State University Athletics. I'm your host, Nolan Alexander, and today we're ready for game week for the Atlanta Falcons. We're joined by the Atlanta Falcons president and CEO, Rich McKay. Inside the Nest is brought to you by Fifth Third Bank, the official bank of Kennesaw State University Athletics. Fifth Third Bank, working hard to make banking a fifth third better. Visit 53.com for more information. McKay is a household name in the NFL. He's been a part of the league for more than 30 years. In 2011, Peter King named him number 10 out of the 100 most influential people in the National Football League. He's in his 16th season with the Atlanta Falcons. As president of AMB Sports and Entertainment, he spearheaded the construction and opening of Mercedes-Benz Stadium in 2017. He served on the NFL's competition committee for the past 26 seasons, and local to us, he's been a Kennesaw State football season ticket holder. His son, Hunter, is one of my dear colleagues at KSU, and we get a few good Hunter McKay stories out of this one. I'll be honest, I think this episode is probably my favorite as far as not only the insight, but how Rich told it. So let's hear from the Falcons president and CEO, Rich McKay, on Inside the Next. Rich, the Falcons kick off on Sunday. NFL season is here. What emotions are you feeling this week? Uh, I think I'm uh, surprised. Um, we're excited, but it's just such a different year. You know, I mean, it's just the, craze, the craziness of it all, the protocols, the amount of uh, effort that has gone into just having a practice, uh, just having the players come to the building, all the people that have contributed to that. Usually, game one, you're – extremely excited and extremely nervous, right? You don't know what football to you. This year, just completely different uh, in that there's so much else going on uh, that you've got to deal with on a daily basis that the emotions are, yes, focus on the football game, but so much else is going on to make sure that we get to the game. I, I've kind of told our associates and everybody in our building, we have three priorities this year, right? And that number one is keep the players safe. Number two, keep the players safe. And number three, keep the players safe. Because if we don't do that, we can't play football. And that's what we've got to do. And then the players got to deliver, you know, on, on Sundays, which they will. But we've got to put them in a position to allow them to do that. So it's just a different year. Well, based on the numbers that have been reported league-wide that you see in the media, it seems like the protocols that have taken place have worked out well. What are your thoughts on how well they worked out over the course of training camp? better than I ever would have expected. We had some uh, test positives when we first came to camp, uh, which would be expected. Those players came back and fine. But I think we, we were one of the, the really success stories in the league in that we had a, a player uh, test positive probably uh, 10 days ago. And so when you have a single player test positive, it's a problem, right? Because uh, all of a sudden you've got to do contact tracing. You have to figure out who that player was near. You got to do all that. Well, here's the beauty of it. That player will return to practice today and get ready to play against Seattle. We only had one. That player's the only person that tested positive. Why? Because of the protocols. Because of everything the league has put in place, everything we've been able to do, we're able to socially distance. We're able to have practices uh, and walkthroughs with masks. We're able to, everything we can do, virtual meetings, everything we've done, you know, let us have it where only that one player uh, tested positive, as opposed to that player coming in because he had no symptoms, and all of a sudden we have 
10 test positives or 12, which we've seen in, in other athletic programs. So, so far, so good. I'm not expecting this to be a vanilla ice cream year. This will be a rocky road. We understand that. We just got to be able to deal with whatever, you know, the cards that we, we get dealt. It was announced that for the month of September, fans will not be present at Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the Falcons or Atlanta United. After the month of September, what factors into the decision to possibly letting fans into the stadium? I think we want to see how other people do it. I think we want to see the experiences of others. I think we also want to see where our state and our locale, principally the metro areas uh, of Atlanta, are doing from an infection standpoint, from a rate of infection standpoint, where all those numbers are. When we made that decision, the numbers were not in a really good place. They're probably in a better place today than they were. And we do think we'll get good learnings from others. So it is definitely on the table for us that we would we consider fans. We want to have fans. Uh, we're not going to do it unless we feel it is completely safe for our players, for the people that work at the stadium, and for the people that will attend the games. Plus, we want to make sure we can, in attending the games, give them some type of experience that makes it worth their while. So we're working on that right now. We'll have people going in week one. We'll have people that drive to other games that have fans, look at that setup, see how their protocols are, see if we could replicate that here, and, uh, and then we'll make the decision. Obviously, Mercedes-Benz Stadium is home to many marquee events across the sports spectrum, and COVID wiped out most of those this year, most notably the Final Four. Is there any talk of the Final Four having a quicker return to Atlanta the next time an open bid comes up? Yeah, the open bids, the problem with that is, of course, there aren't any open bids for a long time. We expect to be uh, a player in their next bid round, uh, but that could easily be 29, 28, 29 before mm. they, they become open. That was a really hard thing for us. I mean, that happened over a 36-hour period. Um, I was at the governor's office at the Capitol one day. We were having the discussion of the Final Four. Is it going to happen? I had just gotten off uh, the phone with the people in Indianapolis that said 100% guaranteed, yes, it is happening. Told them as such. Uh, 12 hours later, I had to tell him, hey, we got a call. They're considering playing, but no fans. But they're going to get back to us. They got back to us the next day and said, yes, definitely playing, no fans, and then that afternoon canceled the tournament. So that's how fast it changed for us. And we had people in our building you know, that worked on that event for 18 months getting ready for that event. So it's hard. It was hard on the, it's hard on the community. It's hard on the hotels. It's hard on the Georgia World Congress Center, our partner. It's tough to lose an event like that, and, and, and we're sorry to see it. We've hosted a lot of big events. Uh, we hosted the Super Bowl. We hosted the National Championship game. We'll host more, many more, but Final Four I missed. I'm so sorry we didn't get to have it. Obviously, in that process, you met with a lot of decision makers in Atlanta sports, and you just mentioned the governor's office here in the state of Georgia, too. Outside of a Final Four or a Super Bowl type event, how often is there collaboration amongst the leaders in Atlanta sports and here at the state level? Well, it's interesting. I would say that we started to have a collaboration between the Braves, the Hawks, and ourselves, you know, Atlanta United and the Falcons maybe about 18 months ago over this whole idea of legalized uh, mobile sports gambling. And so it's the first time we really formed an alliance, first time we'd done anything together. It was pretty cool collaboration. It got started over a, a dinner one night. And I think that it broke down kind of the walls that typically exist where you think that, well, those are our competitors. They're not our competitors. Uh, I think over the pandemic, uh, we have become much better partners and that we talk a lot for the first probably two months, we were talking weekly. What's going on in your shop? What are you doing? How are you dealing with your associates? 
how, you know, all those issues still talk a lot. And, uh, and I like it. We've learned a lot from it. I think it's been good for us. And I think that will be a go forward uh, mode of operation for us. If you're enjoying this episode of Inside the Nest, please leave us a review. Rate this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It drops each and every week. Inside the Nest, the official podcast of Kennesaw State University Athletics. Let's get back to the conversation with Rich McKay, president and CEO of the Atlanta Falcons on Inside the Nest. Back to the NFL with COVID. Obviously, there's going to be changes this year in how things are structured, you know, the ref electronic whistles and sideline spacing, et cetera. But looking into your crystal ball for forward in, in 2021 and beyond, are there any COVID effects that are going to take place in the NFL? And it's maybe not just within the game itself. Maybe it's something that takes place in the offseason. Well, we, we, we saw it this year. It's a good question. I mean, you know, don't ever let you know a good crisis go by without innovating and trying to adapt right i mean that's kind of the nature of the question and and in our case it happened i mean when you look at this year when we got ready for the draft we had many of a football executive in our league many of which i respect a lot and are good friends with that just said this is ridiculous we should not be having the draft there's no way we can do it uh, we don't have on campus workouts we you know they just they listed the list was this big and at the end of the draft, if you asked all of them, how was it? Many of them would say, best draft ever, one of the most efficient drafts we've ever had. Uh, and they did it from their basement or their living room or wherever else they could do it because we did it virtually. I think there'll be a lot more in that um, in, the, in the future. I think the idea that we were able to take area scouts and have really uh, substantive meetings with those area scouts, with the general managers virtually, uh, as opposed to always bringing them in, doing the same thing we've done forever. Meeting starts at 7 a.m., ends at 7 at night. It's a marathon. There's yelling and screaming. This was a little more different. This was definitely different and definitely probably a little more efficient. And I think you'll see a lot of that adopted over time. I think it, we then went to um, a virtual offseason, something we never contemplated, right, which is we're going to draft players and then we're going to not get to see them, not touch them, no physical, no nothing. And we're just going to begin to coach them. And I think our coaches were intimidated by it. Like, oh, can we do this? Is How do you do this? I think the league did it extremely well. All teams did it well. We're not the only team. A lot of teams did this very well. So well that I had a veteran player of ours come up to me <clears throat> a week into training camp and say, wow, the rookies from an alignment and assignment standpoint, it's incredible how far along they are. And he said, way more than usual. And I'm like, yeah, get it. You know, they grew up on tablets. They learn on tablets. And, and we taught them on tablets. And they did really well with it. So I think there are things that, again, that that, that crisis moment will have you adapt to. And you'll do well. I mean, we did a virtual uniform launch of brand new uniforms that we never contemplated doing virtually. We were going to do that. We had a couple big events we were doing, inviting all these big people to we virtually launched it and it went exceedingly well. And that was done because of COVID. How long did that rebranding take that went into not just the jersey itself, but you have the ATL mark? How long was that process? Two years, probably, hmm. I would say. And I'd say two years, probably. We've been talking about it and going through it. And then we had to apply. You have to apply to the league and, and you know, you have to give them 
maybe 18 months notice because remember there's so much product in the market they don't they don't want those people to have to eat that product at the end meaning the old jerseys and all, all the old logo and all that we did that for a long long time we had you know a lot of players involved we had a lot of fans involved we did a lot uh, you try to keep it secret you try to you know you try to lock it down and we had it locked down all the way until somebody I guess we don't publicly say somebody leaked it but let's just face facts somebody leaked it and we dealt with it and it was it was really good. Our players really like it. You'll see it this week for the first time uh, as far as the, the real uniform, black on black uh, for home. And, uh, and we wanted to adopt the ATL. We're like everybody else here, whether, whether it is the Braves, whether it's the Hawks, whether it's, you know, I looked at Georgia Tech. Everybody's kind of going with ATL. Heck, Georgia Tech's gone to 404. That's a cool thing to do. And I think that that is, uh, we want to be proud of that. And so that's why we put it right here on the jersey. Okay, I've got to ask a question that the office wants to know. How much influence did Hunter have on these new jerseys? Uh, Hunt uh, is all, I, he, I use him as the deception mode. So I give him the fake ones and see what he thinks. I never give him the real ones only because with Hunt, you can never quite trust that he might not show it to somebody else. So I, I just, I would say he's not going to see the real thing. He's going to see close to the real thing. Glad we know that answer now. We, we've been wanting to know. Yeah. So part of your role also, not just with the Falcons, but with the NFL, is heading the competition committee. And each offseason, there's always a new wrinkle that's added to the game. What's a new item that fans can watch starting this Sunday that the competition committee discussed and passed this year? Yeah, I would say this is a year of very little change, and it was on purpose. And I think COVID did have something to do with it. One thing we, we say as a competition committee, probably different than other leagues, is we're open to change. We like change. We're okay changing rules. We're okay. We're going to make safety change. We're going to do a lot of things, try to make the game safer and make the game more interesting because ultimately our rules are not designed for our coaches and they're not designed for our players. They're designed for the fans. They're designed for the game. And so we're willing to do that this year, much harder. We, we didn't get to have our, you know, typically we'd get together for a 10 day period face to face. You know, you start with a, a small agenda. It tends to grow and you tend to make big changes. This year, we didn't make a lot. The biggest change we made was changing replay back to what it was from where it had been the year before. So the year before, we'd made that one-year uh, rule change on you can review pass interference, both OPI and DPI, both called and not called. A lot of terminology, but that, that's what it was. We got rid of that, right? We said, okay, let that expire on its own. We're not going to bring that back. That'll be a big change because you'll see the commentators last year leaned into that change. It was great for them from a, from a television standpoint. They could criticize, criticize, criticize because, you know, there was a lot to look at on TV and, and probably we didn't do it real well at the start. That won't be there. And so I think you'll see discussion of that. Otherwise, we didn't make any real, you know, substantive changes that are going to awe you in the game. I think we'll look at things over time. I think we'll continue to look at the kickoff. I think one thing you know about us as a league is we've really leaned into player health and safety for probably the last 10 to 15 years. We've made some substantive changes. Uh, the use of the helmet rule, which is a little bit like your targeting rule in college, um, rules like that are, you know, have definitely impacted the game. It'll be interesting to see how, for us, I think one of the things you should look at as a fan on Sunday is think of how challenging it is to be an official in our league this year. You have not one live rep, not one, because they weren't allowed to come to our practices. So they typically they would have been here in the off season in what we call OTAs, which we did not have. And they would have been here for training camp, which they were not allowed to be. We had no preseason games. We had no joint practices. So 
they to me are are if anybody and i know all these guys on tv that are the talking heads for the officials if anybody criticizes them for anything i am not going to be happy with them because the situation we're putting them into with no live reps is very challenging they're not they're going to go from nothing just watching video and remembering what they've seen to full speed and that's a challenge that's going to be a challenge I might have to take that clip out and just hit it over and over again on Sunday. I'm not sure how well fans are going to take to not yeah. criticizing the officials. Yeah. I know that. It's part of what we do. And I think the officials, if you know them, they understand it. They understand it. But the hard thing for them, like I'll just do pass interference. Here's the hard thing of pass interference is in a year, how many times are they going to see it? 15, 20, 30 maximum of a play that really is close and has. So, it's so unlike baseball where the umpires, you know, that, that, that actually are sitting behind the plate for a game, they get to do that in the Dominican league. They get to do it like 50 times before they get ready for a regular season game. And, uh, and so their reps, they're so repped up on that. Whereas in football, it's just harder. It's just, we just don't have those live reps. And that's why I think when I see people go from the field to the box and, and then begin to criticize, I'm like, hold on now. I kind of used my dad's rule, which was he always said that any coach that comes off the sidelines and goes to the booth, they're about three years removed every year. So once they've been up there in that, that box for five years, they're probably about 15 years removed from football because that's how far it is from up there to the sideline. So speaking of your family, it's well known the McKays are married to the game of football from the predecessors before you to down to your sons right now, Hunter with us at KSU and his brother with the LA Rams. For you, when you went to Princeton, did you go in knowing that I want to find my way into the game or did it come no. upon later? No, no, 100% uh, later. You know, my dad was pretty clear to my brother, uh, John and I, that, you know, whatever you do, you're not going into football. Um, you're better than that. Get a profession you know, have a, have a job, live in a town, live in the same town. Don't get in a profession where you're moving all over the place. The profession's much harder than it was when he got in, uh, you know, which was, heck, 1950 was his first year coaching. Um, so we all went in with that mindset, right? So we got out of, I got out of college uh, and went right into law school. Uh, then I went in and clerked for a federal judge. I left that federal judgeship, went to uh, work for a law firm with zero intent of football in my mind. Um, and then the owner of the team called me the second day I was at, at my law firm, Hillward Henderson, and said, hey, would you, you know, like to have uh, the Bucks as a client? Well, you know, when you're a second day lawyer and the NFL team calls and says you can, your answer to that, sure, yeah, I like that. Uh, so I did that as a lawyer at the firm for six years and just kind of did more and more work, got closer to it. Next thing you know, my brother is back in football. I'm back in football. I'm not sure my dad was thrilled although he did like it because he got to see us turn the franchise back around. The franchise, it, it couldn't have been worse. It just got really bad. And we, we got an opportunity to go uh, work there with a bunch of really good people and got it turned around. And it was great to have, you know, take my mom and dad to a game when we were actually competitive and we actually could win uh, because uh, it had been a long time since the franchise had won. We'd like to take a moment to thank our healthcare partner, Wellstar Health System. At Wellstar, their mission is to enhance the health and well-being of every person they serve. Their vision is to deliver world-class healthcare to every person, every time. We'd also like to thank our proud partner, Coca-Cola, for being the beverage choice of KSU Athletics events. Coca-Cola, taste the feeling.
It's Inside the Nest, the official podcast of Kennesaw State University Athletics, available on wherever you listen to podcasts, and a new episode is released every week. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button, and let's get back to the conversation with Rich McKay. As we close out this episode of Inside the Nest, Hunter told me I could ask you four rapid-fire questions. Is that okay? Go right ahead. Sure. Give it to me. All right, I first may not one. answer them well, but I'm ready. So first one starting out, I've actually passed you on the Silver Comet running before. Uh, I take it running is a hobby of yours. And if so, what's the furthest you've ever run? I've run uh, either six or seven marathons. And because of COVID, I can't remember if I'm on seven or six. I've run one of the two. Uh, so I've run a couple of New York's. I've run a marathon in every decade since my 20s. So 20, 30, 40, 50. And then I ran one at 60. Um, I think that the number one thing about running for me is it's the ultimate way to get away from the office, right? You can get away. In the old days, I'm old enough, there were no phones, so it was really an escape. Uh, it's not quite the escape it once was. And then I think the other thing I always say is you can never stop having personal goals. Don't ever just have professional goals. You got to have personal goals. So to me, running is a personal goal. I want to make sure I can run a marathon. I want to make sure I can run a half. I, I want to challenge myself that way, whether I'm playing golf or running. So that's kind of why I do it. Who is your favorite diamond in the rough draft prospect in, in all your years working in the league that you didn't get a chance to draft? Hmm. Wow, that's a crazy, uh, that's a crazy question that we didn't get a chance to draft. Well, I would say that you're going to think this is a stupid name as a diamond in a rough because he wasn't a diamond in a rough, but I would say that when, when Randy Maughan, the two people that fell, towards us that we we didn't even really prepare for were randy moss and adrian peterson and both of them ended up getting picked you know right before us um in tampa randy moss was just he just kept falling he just kept falling and and when you watch the tape of him at marshall i don't there's nobody has college tape like that there's nobody you know people say oh this guy's great this guy Randy Moss at Marshall was in a class by himself. It wasn't even, he was going to be a great player. Now he had all these issues going on. So he's falling and we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to say, could we really pull the trigger? And, and he got drafted. And I remember we had that sense of relief, but we had that sense of, wow, I don't know now. Maybe we shouldn't have relief. And then of course we had to play against him and oh my God, what an eccentric headache. And then I'd say Adrian Peterson, we were sitting at, here in Atlanta, we were, I think we were picking eight. And, you know, he just kept falling. And the issue with Adrian was the knee. You know, he'd had this injury. They weren't sure about it. You know, but we had signed off on him. Although we still had an issue with it, we signed off on him. And as that day progressed, we got just very comfortable of, you know what? We can take Adrian Peterson. And we kind of settled on it, and he got picked to pick before us. And so those are the two that of just ones where you said, boy, I think this is going to work. And they fell before you, but um, I wouldn't say they're diamonds in the rough, but they're definitely ones that we saw and said, wow, what could have been? Great answers. What's your favorite memory with a Falcons fan from running into him or her on the street or around the stadium on game day? Yeah, there's a, a, a woman that works at, at the Hillsborough County uh, County Commission, and she will, if she sees this, will definitely bring it up. But we were in L.A. to play, I think it was a regular season game. And, you know, she came up to me and she had all this stuff. I don't even know what the heck. She had everything on. 
and she gave me a hug and we walked because I walked to the game. And so I was walking with her. I guess it was a year later. We were in the playoffs playing there. So ran into her again, almost in the same situation in New Orleans. I should say it was in New Orleans where I ran into her again. And I'm like, dude, we kind of quit. And then I had to go to the Hillsborough County Commission in a, in a uh, not Hillsborough County, the Fulton, Fulton County Commission in a stadium related vote. And she was there. And I'm like, this is craziness. So, uh, yes, that's my uh, that's my lady I run into. I run into her on the street. She goes to all of our games, likes to go to the road games. And I think the road people, those are that's where it's all about, because in that you've got to go into a hostile environment. You're not really welcome. And uh, and yet you got to have you got to be able to talk a little smack, which she's able to. It's my goal one day to find my way into the most hostile NFL environment. I feel like, you know, back in Oakland in the black hole, I wanted to try to find my way over there as a Falcons fan. I'm not sure it would have found my way out, but I think that'd be quite the experience. The vet, the, so the old vet, right, before they moved to the link, the link, uh, the old vet in Philly, you know, we would tell people, don't go, don't go. And if you go, don't you dare wear, you know, Falcon colors. Go wear green, sit there, don't say anything. They'll figure you out. You're going to get figured out. But I would say that was uh, as, as intimidating a place as any I've been in. Wow. All right, last question. What is your favorite job-related memory with Hunter? Oh, no, uh, that's easy. 2004, first year in Atlanta. Maybe we're 5-0. and We're 4-0. We're 5-0. and And we go play Kansas City. And uh, Jimmy Mora loses his mind a little bit. And we go for it like two or three times in the first half on fourth down. We don't get it. They're ahead 35 to nothing. They beat us 56 to nothing or 56 to three. Get in the locker room. And Hunter, you know, was that was one of his road trips. He went with me. I'd always take he and John at least one or two games a year. He was in the locker room with me. And Jimmy just came up out of nowhere and said, what in the hell? And he didn't use hell, but I'll say hell. What in the hell am I supposed to say to this team? That was awful. That was it. And and Hunter, just out of nowhere, just a little boy at the time, said, Coach, just tell him we're going to kick Denver's ass next week. And I looked like, and I'm like, oh, Hunter, don't. I mean, because Jimmy, if you know Jimmy, Jimmy got a little volcano to him, right? So Jimmy is liable to just crush Hunter on this. And he looks over at Hunter and he says, Hunt, it's a great answer. So he goes and he, he literally goes and talks to the team, gives them the speech, says you're going to kick Denver. And the next week, I remember sitting in the box and we were playing Denver. And I think Denver, they get ahead at least 10 nothing. If not, they're ahead. And it, it looks bad. And we have a third and 20-something. And Mike Vick pulls one of those classic where he goes back and he pretends he's looking to pass. He, you know, he pretend. He'd look. He'd look. He had no intention to pass. He ran for first down. And we destroyed him. And so when the game was over, I was just so thankful that it had happened that way. So I went right up to Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, I told you, Hunter nailed it last week. And so that was my favorite Hunter story. I have not heard of that one before. That, that is a yeah. classic. Yeah, that's a classic hunt. And then to give you one more is if we, we lost in New Orleans, God, in a terrible game right at the end. I mean, just terrible. And the New Orleans locker room is not bad because it's way worse than that. It's awful, terrible by design by them, just terrible. It's awful. You can't even fit in it. And so we're all jammed in and everybody's there. And Mike Smith is, you know, trying to gather himself a little bit. And he's like, everybody up, everybody up. And Mike, you know, is very calm, very direct guy. So he's just dealing with the emotion of the moment. And then all of a sudden, all the lights out in the locker room, all of them. 
And Mike, you know, was like, what the hell? Who turned the lights off? <laughs> Hunter had leaned against the wall and hit the light and the switch had gone. <laughs> so he turned it back on and Mike looked and, you know, of course, everybody loves Hunt. So he looked over, he saw it was Hunter. He said, oh, Hunter, okay. And then he started talking again. <laughs> it was classic. That was, those are my two Hunter locker room stories. All right. Hunter and post game. I've got to find my way. That, that seems to be where the memories are. Yes, it will. So for full transparency, it was a bit of an abrupt ending. We were up against a wall. I happened to look in the corner of my screen, and then there's Dan Quinn just standing there ready to talk with Rich. Probably has some important things going on this Sunday, so I let him get to it. Inside the Nest is brought to you by Fifth Third Bank, the official bank of Kennesaw State Athletics. Fifth Third Bank, working hard to make banking a fifth third better. Visit 53.com for more information. Big, big thanks to Rich McKay and the Atlanta Falcons for joining us on Inside the Nest. We look forward to watching those new uniforms on display Sunday when the Falcons open up the 2020 NFL season against the Seattle Seahawks at Mercedes-Benz Stadium at 1 p.m. I'm Nolan Alexander. Thank you for joining us on Inside the Nest. If you enjoyed this episode and there's someone that you know from the 1KS community that you think would be a good guest, let me know. My email is inalexa29 at kennesaw.edu. I hope you enjoy your NFL game day on Sunday. And until next time, go Owls! Go Owls!